Good morning, beautiful church. Glad you're here, ready to sit for a little while. And it is good to be back with you. Some of you know I had COVID uh, round two last week. That's why I was not here last Sunday. All good now, don't worry. Um, but it's good to be back. And uh, Howard already mentioned that we had Bethel Garage Sale here. You wouldn't believe it. 24 hours ago, this place was a buzz. Uh, going full bore, the largest garage sale in Stonewall. Every year happening, just filling this building. Every little nook and cranny. It was incredible. And it was really cool for me because I didn't do any work, which is kind of typical, you know. Um, but just to watch, I mean, many of you from this church and others too, but just to like watch you serving families, little kids, see all, all sorts of different people coming together, working together to pull that off. Uh, to bless a ministry and bless a whole bunch of kids, disadvantaged kids in Kenya. It's just a beautiful sight. So for those of you who contributed in some way, um, thank you. I, I don't know if you got a total already. Probably not an official one, but I know a lot came in. And they're very happy with that. And uh, I did my part. I did all my Christmas shopping already. It's done. It's great. So uh, last weekend actually also was our annual church board retreat which I had to join by Zoom, but uh, the board gathered in Pinawal Wilderness Lodge for a weekend of uh, team building and prayer and discernment and planning and a bunch of conversations there. One was led by Greg, and I, of course, I was joined by Zoom, but Greg and Greg Fashion. Is Greg in the room? Oh, there he is up there. I guess I can't say that. Um, no kidding. Uh, Greg, he always opens with a great kind of question. And so the, the, the question that Greg, our board chair, posed to us was that, that we were supposed to share an experience that your grandchildren will never have the joy of experiencing. And uh, It was interesting to hear the answers because everyone on that team is really old, except for me. And so um, just to hear, hear what they said, uh, one guy piped up and said, I think it was Howard, he said, milking a cow. You would have grown up milking a cow, but his, his grandkids, I guess... Uh, Probably won't milk a cow. I bet there's some kids today that don't know that milk comes from cows. You ever have kids come to a tour on your farm to be horrified to discover that the milk they drink comes out of a cow? Herman, he's shaking his head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, someone up, piped up and said, the party line, the party line on the phone. Do, do any of you remember the party line? We had to share a phone line with, with other people, and uh, I missed out on that joy, but some of you know what that's all about. And I shared... Um, like having to wait a whole week to watch your favorite TV show. Do you remember a day TGIF? You had to wait till Friday evening to watch that TV show and there, you had the, the commercials and then you had to wait a whole other week and everyone watched it at the same time and talk about it. And my kids, they don't even know anything about that. And it's kind of an interesting thought exercise. Like for you, what's something you have experienced that your grandchildren will never have the joy of experiencing? It's just crazy how fast life changes, Right? like technological change. I feel sorry for you old people. <laughs> What'd you say? You feel sorry for me? Thank you. Um, man, life has changed. Like the technological change is incredible and it's only picking up speed. And you know, it's not just the technological change. If you think of that question, like, well, you experience that your kids or grandkids maybe won't, like, society has also changed on, a, like, a cultural, moral level, hasn't it? 
like big time, and it's continuing to change, and that change is accelerating all of the time. Like there was things that a generation or two ago, it wasn't that long ago, were kind of frowned upon, like maybe like the races getting together and mingling, and God forbid, maybe marrying one another, and it wasn't that long ago, you know, like they kept to themselves with their own spaces, right? That wasn't that long ago. And now kind of the prevailing sense, hopefully, is that's a great thing to be together. Interracial relationships, it's beautiful. We celebrate it right? What was frowned upon one generation um, is now like accepted or maybe celebrated today. And conversely, right, there were things that, that were like everyone, it was just common sense that they were right and good, but now we've determined they're not good, they're wrong. A whole bunch of stuff like that too, right? Like I remember even when I was in school, there was still something called the strap, remember? Like you could get called down to the principal's office and they would take out a belt and hit you. Anyone here ever get the strap at school? Ed Mullis, Al. <laughs> okay, keep your hands high. It's all the men. <laughs> like literally, it's all the men in the in the room. <laughs> Anyone get it more than five times? Yep, Quentin. Okay. That does not surprise me at all. <clears throat> and I remember, like I never got the strap, okay? But, but I remembered, like when I was thinking about this, this memory came back. I think I was in grade four, Mr. Baird, he was a bit of an angry teacher. I remember he actually got upset at me. He actually came over to my desk and he grabbed me by this ear. And he twisted my ear and he actually pulled me out of my desk and lifted me up. And it, it dawned on me, that's why this ear kind of sticks out. It's kind of, have you noticed that? <laughs> have you noticed that this one's kind of against my head and this one kind of sticks out a little bit? And I realize, that's always bugged me, and I realize why. It's because of Mr. Baird. He pulled my ear. And that's why this thing has a hard time staying on. And now my kids, it's like they're horrified. Our kids, these days. there was a time when your teacher would hit you and that was considered good. Like now you get arrested for that and you lose your job, Right? And so, like, how quickly just the morals and what's acceptable and good and what's wrong changes. And you know what? We haven't reached that point where it stopped changing. It's going to continue to change. You know, I remember as, as a young person, as a kid, there was a, a guy that was rather controversial uh, who was in the news all the time. His name, I think, was Dr. Jack Kevorkian. Does that name ring a bell for some of you? Dr. Jack Kevorkian, back in the 80s and the 90s, he was kind of the preeminent advocate for the right to die movement, right? Um, advocating for the right for someone to be able to end their life with the assistance of um, a doctor. And that was very controversial back in that day. He was nicknamed Dr. Death. People knew him by that. Um, he kind of famously said, dying is not a crime. It was in 1987 that uh, Dr. and Dr. Death, he started advertising his services, what he called death counseling. His first publicly assisted suicide, the one that he assisted with, was a woman, Janet Adkins, who's a 54-year-old woman, diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 89, and, and he helped her end her life in 1990. He, he devised what he called a death machine, literally a thanatron. Thanos comes from the Greek word death. Something he called a death machine. He had rigged it up so that he could set up a, cl uh, a client or a patient and, of course, he legally wasn't allowed to administer something, so he could just set it up so they could press the button to do it themselves, right? But um, that was seen as not okay kind of by 
commonly in society, although it was controversial, and certainly by the, by the law. And um, uh, he was charged in 1999 for second-degree murder. He had helped, at that point, already 130 people, um, ill people, uh, end their life in the 90s. And so he was charged in 1999 and uh, convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 10 to 25 years in jail. Uh, for helping some, some, an ill person take their life. Uh, and then uh, he, he was released, I guess, shortly before his passing, and uh, in interviewing in, 19, in 2010 with Sanjay Gupta, you know, CNN health guru, um, he said, what difference does it make if someone is terminal? We're all terminal. And already at that point, like, attitudes had shifted, right? He was, he was charged for murder and convicted in 1999, and today... It's just the practiced law of the land. Attitudes have shifted. Um, here in Canada, in, in, I think it was February 2015, actually, the Supreme Court, it was a case called Carter versus Canada, uh, ruled against criminalization of um, medical-assisted suicide, euthanasia, whatever you want to call it. Said it violated the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and gave... Uh, gave the Canadian government a few months to figure it out. And so in June 2016, the Canadian government passed uh, a change to the law which allowed under strict uh, circumstances for someone to receive assistance in the medical profession to end their life. And, and those rules that were established back in 2016, you had to be age 18, so you had to be an adult. You had to have a grievous and irre irremediable medical condition, which meant that you had to have a serious disease or disability in your body. You had to be experiencing unbearable physical or mental suffering because of that disease. And your death at that time had to be uh, foreseeable in the, in the near future. Okay? And if you met those conditions, and if you wanted to move forward, there, there was this lengthy process, these steps, where you could go through it and then um, be assisted in dying, hastening your death. Um, but there's continued to be debate around the rules and, 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 and what we should allow. And so maybe you heard of it a year ago, March uh, 17, 2021, the Canadian government amended that, Bill C-7, where they loosened the restrictions because the growing sense was that was too restrictive. And so the government loosened that um, and, and made some changes. No longer does your condition need to be terminal in nature. It doesn't have to be a condition that shortens your life at all. Just one that, that in which you feel you, you experience unbearable uh, suffering. And you don't have to actually have a physical ailment. It, now, if you have just a mental illness, if your body is completely healthy, but if you have a mental illness and you think that you experience unbearable suffering, now you qualify, right, to have assistance in ending your life. That condition, the mental illness, that takes effect, effect actually in one year, March 2023, that comes into effect. So that's where things stand in Canada. Europe has gone a little bit further. Maybe you hear that every once in a while in the news. I, I saw actually just a few weeks ago, uh, th these two sisters, age 54, 49, sisters, Phoenix, Arizona, seemingly healthy women, uh, took a trip together, no one knew what they were doing to Switzerland, and they ended their life in uh, an establishment there. It's, it's, it's a private, companies do this there. It's not just the medical system, it's actual companies. And so they went, and they went through that process, and they have their, had their lives ended together even though seemingly they didn't have any ailments. That was allowable. 
And things continued to progress. In fact, actually just a few months ago, um, a new product was released. You can throw a picture up there. It's called the Sarcopod. It's been made legal in, in Switzerland. Switzerland seems to be the cutting edge of this movement. But this is actually a, a, a suicide machine that uh, you can print on a 3D printer. Right? So it, it just kind of cuts the medical profession out of it. So now this is something that, that you can actually acquire and you could, you could, you know, you crawl in there and I guess, you know, you press some buttons and it, it, some carb, some gas or something comes in there and very nicely you, you comfortably exit this world, uh, the sarcopod. And so um, that, that's the latest innovation. And I wonder, I wonder where it's going to go from here, right? As, as culture, uh, society continues to evolve. And, and why do I bring that up? Uh, we're beginning a new series today that we've called Burning Questions. So what we're doing uh, over these couple of months is we're inviting you to submit whatever question you have about the Bible, God, the Christian faith, the Christian life, just, just something you're like, if, if I just had an answer to this question, if I, if I understood this better, I think that would be really helpful. Inviting you to submit whatever burning question that you have and uh, we're going to take a handful of them, and we're going to address them here on a Sunday morning. And so many of you, you've already taken us up on that invitation, submitting it, writing it on the paper, the little box in the foyer. You can do it there. And keep them coming. You're emailing them, doing it online through, uh, through the weekly email. There's a way to do that. And so we encourage you to keep submitting your questions. And one of those questions that came in was from one of the life groups in our church, and their question was this. If a, if a Christian commits suicide, do they still go to heaven? And so after that, I thought, maybe I should have clarified that I wanted easy questions. Because something I've noticed is that they're hard questions. And so I'm like, that's a hard question. Uh, I don't know if I want to do that. But then I saw that there were actually two other questions, two other people in our church had a question like, how does a Christian think and respond to this whole issue of euthanasia? So I thought, man, there's three people in our church that have already submitted a question about that issue. Maybe, maybe, maybe I wonder if there's others. I wonder if there's others who are hearing about this, and, and maybe it's something that's not even just theoretical or abstract, something that has actually personal to your life. I was thinking, you know, I've had at least two conversations with people in this church in the past year that have had someone very close to them, family member, go through this process. And they've come to me just talking about it, going, what do I think, like, what am I supposed to think about this? How am I supposed to respond to this situation? And as this becomes more and more prevalent, maybe more and more of us will find ourselves in that position. And so I thought, well, well maybe this isn't something that we should just kind of push to the side and avoid. Maybe, maybe this is something that we need to look at and, and maybe hopefully go to the Scriptures and, and find a little bit of direction on this. And so that's what we're going to do together this morning. How are we supposed to think about this issue of the... Of, 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 the Christian and ending one's life, or what in, in Canada is called officially made, M-A-I-D, medical assistance in dying. Uh, really three questions I want to address this morning. First of all, is it against God's will for somebody to end their life? Like, is that just always against God's will? Secondly, then, I mean, if, that, if, if so, does, how does God treat that? Does God actually punish that with hell? Which was... One of the questions. And then, kind of given the answers to those questions, what implications does that actually have in our lives as those who follow Jesus? So we'll look at that together here. But first of all, like, how do we, we have to think, like, how do we decide what's right and wrong? 
Like, things are changing all the time, right? Like, do you think we've come to a point in the world where we've figured it out and we've finally arrived at what's good in everything? Or do you think things are going to continue to change? Don't you think that just as there was something that was frowned upon called bad, like, 20 years ago, now it's called good, don't you think there's something we call bad today that 20 years later we're going to call good? Or something that we call good now that 20 years later is going to call bad? So, like, do we just rely on, the, on kind of the collective common sense of the here and now when we know that there are things that we think are common sense that years from now society will say is not common sense? Like, how do we decide what's good and bad, what's right and wrong? Are we just left to kind of the, the collective common sense of society at any given time? And I don't think so, of course. Our answer is we go to God's Word. We believe that the Bible gives us insight and wisdom. In fact, this is what uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay? All of the Bible, God, because He loves us, because He wants us to know Him and to know His good will and how to live a good life, in His love for us, he, he has given to us what we need to know, Paul says, everything we need to know to be equipped for every good work, okay? To be trained in righteousness. And so we don't know what the future holds. We don't know how things are going to develop, but God does. God stands over, you know, He, know, he, knows, he knows the, the end from the beginning, God's wisdom is complete, it's perfect, God knows the future, and God, in His love for us, has given us what we need to know in order to know how to like, live rightly in the world, in all these situations. And that doesn't mean we can turn to a verse and go, there it is, in black and white, one verse, it's right or it's wrong. No, He gives us, well, a lot of these modern issues, just principles, that if we take these principles, we can take them into any situation and kind of dis discern what is good. What is right? What is pleasing to God? What is His will? And so, I mean, um, there, there's sociological and psychological answers to the questions we're posing, but we just really want to go to the Bible for kind of a, a theological, uh, seek theological wisdom to think about suicide. Uh, and when we do that, I mean, whenever we're thinking about an issue like that, I think a good place to start is, is to try to think of, like, what's the best case for it? And you know what? Like, if, if we're going to be honest, and I'm being honest, like, I think there's a really compelling case for someone who's really suffering to have assistance. Like, I, I could see how there's a, a compelling case. And as I've thought about that, like, why would this be something that would be good? I mean, I think there's two principles that come to me, right, that, that, that I saw, too, in kind of my reading uh, that, that would support that. The first is, we might call the principle of autonomy, right? The sense that I, I am free and I ought to be free to do whatever I want that affects only me because I belong to me, right? Nobody can tell me what I can do with me. And so it's this principle of autonomy, like we should have control over our own destiny. Freedom to choose. So that might be that first compelling principle. And if there's a second one, it's, it's freedom to choose, but it's also freedom from suffering. I shouldn't have to face, unnecessarily, I shouldn't have to face suffering and maybe terrible suffering, right? That really affects my quality of life. 
And so that other principle might be kind of the principle of the quality of life. And so what we want to do this morning in our, in our few minutes together is just to kind of, let's take those and let's go to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about that. Does it shed any insight that help us know kind of how to think and act on this issue? So first of all, let's look at that principle of autonomy, that autonomy, right? Um, so the question is, is the will of the individual decisive in what they do with their life? Is ultimately that what matters? The, the will of the individual. Like, I remember, years, I don't know how long ago it was, Sue Rodriguez, she was in the news there for a time because she was a woman in Canada who was suffering from ALS, you know, some terrible suffering, and, and she wanted the right to be able to end her life, and I think pro- probably that happened. But the, the, the question that she posed was this, whose life is it anyway? It's a good question. Whose life is it anyway? And she's talking about her own life. And I think, you know, she didn't provide the answer because the answer was supposed to be assumed. The answer was... Well, it's my life. And I guess the question is, is that really the right answer? Is your life your life? If we go to uh, those words that Jody Lee read, Psalm 139, David says to God, he says, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. And he's not trying to say human beings are woven in the depths of the earth like orcs in Lord of the Rings. No. Just trying to make a point. Like, God is the creator of life. All life. God made you. Did you know like you are made by God? You are God's idea. You are wonderfully made. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. When He made man, it says He made man in His image. Nothing else was made in His image with a unique value and a unique purpose. To know Him. To enjoy Him and to live with Him forever. That's why He made you. You are God's idea. You are wonderfully made, fearfully made, which essentially means like God took great care. It's something we have to treat with real seriousness. Not, we don't treat him like flippantly or carelessly, but fearfully. It is a holy and heavy thing. God's intent for humanness. God is our creator. You're his idea. And so this is reiterated over and over again, of course, in the Scriptures, but this is what, how Paul puts it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Don't you know that your bodies, isn't that credit? Your body is a temple of God's Spirit. God is very interested in what we do with our bodies, right? We are not our own, our lives. You were bought at a price. And of course, he's talking about Jesus there, right? God sent his son to on the cross and through his death and resurrection to, to, to make a way for us to be reconciled to God, to know God, and to have the life He created us to have. He went through all that work and effort and sacrifice, right? You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Honor God with your bodies. 
He kind of reiterates this. In, in Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8, Paul will say, For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to who? To the Lord, right? In life and in death, we are not our own. We are not to live in our own terms. We belong in life and in death. We belong to God. And so what is the answer to that question, whose life is it anyway? Well, maybe the right answer is, you are God's. You are God's. We, as human beings, we are not autonomous. We are not independent. We are not supposed to be. We are accountable to God with ourselves, with our bodies, with our minds, with our spirits, with everything that is in our possession. In fact, it's, I think it's true to say that we are owners of nothing. Like, I know the deed on your house says it's your house, but it's not your house. And the deed in your car says it's, you know, your, your, your registration, your MPI, it says it belongs to you. Well, it kind of does and it kind of doesn't. You are owners of nothing, for the Bible says, Paul would say, I think in 2 Corinthians 1, what do you have that you have not received from God? And if you have received it, why do you act as if you didn't, right? What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. Everything we have, we have because God has given to us. And so the right question always asks is, God, why did you give it to us? We are not autonomous. We are not independent. We are accountable, God, to you. We are stewards of what you have given to us, even stewards of that which is most intimate and personal, even stewards of ourselves and our bodies. We do not live or die on our own terms. It's God's will that is decisive. It's God's will that's decisive as our creator and redeemer and the one who has a plan and purpose for our life. And so that sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, we normally think, like, don't go murder someone else. It, it's bigger than that. It's don't, not shedding innocent blood, right? God doesn't want us to take the life of someone who bears His image, who has this incredible value, whom God has made for a special purpose. So thou shalt not kill isn't just about taking someone else's life, it's about taking human life. Because all life belongs to God. It's His will that's decisive. And so this made medical assistance in dying, we might say maybe that's role reversal with God. Maybe we're not autonomous. Maybe we're accountable to God. Maybe death is God's unique prerogative. And I would say it is. We are not our own. We cannot live nor die on our own terms. But of course, I mean, nobody just takes their life because they can, right? Like, it's deeper than that. Like, no one who buys a Lamborghini just buys it to go and smash it just because it's theirs and they can, right? Nobody takes their life because they can. It's theirs. They do it because they're suffering. And they come to a point where they, um, they, they suffer too much to feel it's worth living Suffering is, is, is the problem, right? And, and, and suicide or euthanasia to some becomes a solution to the problem of suffering. And that suffering can be, that can be all sorts of different things, right? It can be physical suffering, it can be disease. Like, I have cancer and it's only a matter of time 
and I know, hey, we know how this goes. There's going to be pain involved. So why not avoid the pain and the inevitable and just do it my way, do it now? I get that. Physical suffering, mental anguish, the fear of the future, the fear of just not having control, the fear of just meaninglessness. I don't know if you've heard, but suicide has just spiked. It's going up and up and up. And, and it's, not, it's not like sick people. It's just people that have lost desire to live because they look at life and they don't see meaning. People are having existential crises. What is life? Why suffer? What is the point? Or the way Shakespeare put it, to be or not to be, that is the question. I don't know a whole lot of Shakespeare. You probably already know. I'm not like a book reading guy. Like I wait for the movie version to come out, Right? So I haven't read a lot of Shakespeare. I just know like, Romeo, Romeo, let down thy hair, right? That, that, and then some of the other guys, you're like, yeah, I've heard that one too. Yeah, those are my guys. Uh, and yeah, that one, and then, and then to be or not to be, that is a question. We've all heard it, and I, I didn't realize so recently, like that, that's actually a reference to someone wrestling. It's in Hamlet. Someone wrestling about the question of whether they should just keep going and face whatever the future holds, the sufferings of, of humanness, or whether just to be better just to end it all. It comes from this. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep, no more. And by asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep. To sleep, perchance a dream, eh, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. Now, I'm not 100% sure what that all means. But I think he's, he's kind of wrestling with this dilemma. Like, do I, like, do I keep going and facing, you know, the, whatever life holds and the suffering that, that is ahead? Or, or do I just end it and face kind of whatever comes, whatever maybe comes with death and after death? Whatever the reason is, ending one's life becomes a solution to suffering. Suffering, that's the problem quality of life. Is life worth living? How do you answer that question? Is life worth living? Because even the word worth, I mean, that has to do with value, right? What gives life its value? What gives life its quality? And so when we say quality of life, we normally mean health and wealth and comfort and all the things that are the opposite of suffering and disease. And so many people come to the point where the, the conclusion that life is no longer worth living for one reason or another because quality of life uh, is not there. And, you know, like, I have, I have to be humble. I, I, I've, I've scraped the surface of human suffering. I almost feel embarrassing talking about it because what do I know? I mean, some of you, you've experienced terrible things, but... Man, human suffering can at times be horrible beyond words. And I don't know the half of it. But some are living that way, in that suffering. And I think it's right that we should do everything we can as followers of Jesus to alleviate suffering 
everything we can to alleviate suffering for the sake of life. But do we try to solve that suffering with death? I guess the question is, is there quality of life even in suffering? Is there value in life even in suffering? Is there value? Is there anything worth living? And I think this is where the Christian has to say, those who know God in His Word, yes. Even in the face of suffering, even, God forbid, terrible suffering, there is hope. And there can be meaning and purpose through that suffering and sometimes even in that suffering. And so coming back to what David said in Psalm 139, he says, where can I flee from you, go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. Even in the depths of the earth, in despair, God, you are there. You're not just a God who just is a wind-up toy and you made me for fun and you don't really care. God, you, are in, you care intimately about my life. You are with me. Even in my sufferings, you are close, you care. And a few verses later, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has your days. God made your life with with purpose and with plan. And even when life is hard and even when life involves suffering that does not exhaust God's purpose, the ability to find purpose and meaning in the midst of that. As long as God gives you life, He has purpose for your life. Paul was someone who, he suffered. In fact, Paul was suicidal. Some of you, you know this struggle personally, and we all know someone close to us who does. There were people in the Bible, godly men, women, who who struggled with suicidal thoughts because they suffered so greatly. Right, and Paul was one of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, I despaired even of life itself, is how he puts it. And 2 Corinthians, he talks about his suffering and his wrestling with it. And at the end of it in chapter 12, he says this. He came to grips with that. And he had begged God to take away this thorn. There was, he doesn't even say what it is. There was this thorn in his flesh, this ailment. We don't know if it was physical or mental or what it might have been. But it plagued him. And he wanted rid of this suffering. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that God's power may rest on me. For that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He's not saying, I like to suffer. You know, he's not a masochist. I like to suffer. I like pain. No, he came to understand that even in his weakness, even in his sufferings, God is at work in his life and God, by his power, has purpose and meaning in the midst of that. And he had come to discover that, right, that in his weakness, he is strong because in his weakness, God's, first of all, God's glory can be displayed. And Christian, what is our life for? What is your life for? It's, it's not just to like take a bunch of nice holidays, make it to retirement, 
Try to live as healthy and happy as you can and then pack it in. Our life is for God. We were made to know God and to enjoy God and to glorify God with our lives. That's why we exist. And Paul came to understand even in our sufferings, we have the ability to glorify God in how we bear these difficult things. God has purpose and meaning. There, in other words, you never come to a point in life where there is nothing left to learn, nothing left to receive from God, nothing left to give to those around you. You know, because some people kind of think, I'm close enough to my end. Look at the state I'm in. There's really no purpose. There's really no meaning. And, and, and the Bible would say, that's not true. Even in those places and times, God has a purpose for you, something to give to those around you, and something to receive from God. Even you know, if, if, if you don't understand it or see it in the moment. Because just because I can't see any purpose in my pain or any purpose in my future, that doesn't mean there is any. That doesn't mean there is any. God calls us to trust Him. God calls us to obey Him and to trust that every day that He gives us life, He has meaning for our life. Even if we can't see it, how is that it is at work? And so... The question is, how do, we, how do we value life? What is its value? God gives our life, even in suffering, meaning and purpose. That doesn't mean that we're people that cling to life either, too. Like, well, well, maybe I should distinguish here. We were talking about euthanasia because it's kind of you don't, want, you don't want it to be misunderstood. We're talking about hastening death. We're not talking about not prolonging life, right? There are times when you just take, allow death to take its natural course. You know, you pull the plug. You, you stop the feeding. You stop the treatments because you're like, I'm just, I'm ready to go. I don't need any more of these treatments. There's a difference between just allowing death to take its course and actually bringing on death, artificially hastening it. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. And there's a big difference because we're not people that need to shy away from death. We're not those that need to cling to life, those who know Jesus, right? In fact, it describes Christians this way in John's vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 12 with those disciples that are already around the throne of God. It describes them this way. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They didn't live their whole life trying not to die. That, that wasn't how they lived life because there are some people, they idolize life too, right? The goal is to live and the Christian's goal is not to live. As long as they can. Our goal is to follow God, to trust Him, to obey Him, and to seek His glory in our lives, to fulfill whatever purpose He has for us. And not to shrink from death when death comes, because we have nothing to fear in death for those who know Jesus Christ. And so the goal of life isn't to avoid death or to avoid suffering or to prolong life. It's to know God to trust God, to enjoy God, to glorify God, to love God, and to love others. And all of those things we can do, even in suffering. And so just for those reasons, church, um, I guess I come to the conclusion, looking at, at the Scriptures, that it just isn't the will of God to end your life. 
for a person to end their life or, or, or to help another. We are, we are not our own. We are accountable to God. And God gives us value and hope and meaning in every day of life that He gives us. So if the question is to be or not to be, I guess that the answer maybe is to be until God should decide we not be. And we say that humbly knowing that life sometimes is really hard and suffering is sometimes very heavy. So maybe that was that first question. So we'll just take a break and then come back in about five minutes to continue the sermon. No. Just a few more minutes here. Okay. What about those, what about those though, that took their life? You know, whether by their own hand or through, uh, through a doctor. Like, what, 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 what happens to them, right? Do they not go to heaven? That was the question. Do they go to hell? And maybe you heard that. Like, I, I remember hearing that as a kid. If you commit suicide, you go to hell. And I don't know where that came from. I don't know who told it to me. I don't, I don't know if it was my dad when he was preaching. I don't remember him saying it. But that just kind of be something like that people said and, and maybe believe. And I, I don't know if it was because, you know, like there was more of that Catholic idea of sin because they have different categories of sin. There's venial sin and mortal sin. And venial, they're the, the venial, they're the smaller sins. If you do those, they weaken your relationship with God. But the mortal sins, the really biggies, if you commit one of those, you actually sever, you cut yourself off from the saving grace of God if you commit one of the biggies. And the, and, and the only way to be reconnected is through the act of confession. So murder and suicide, and there's a couple others that are, are technically called mortal sins, and if you commit that, you, you are severed from God's saving grace. God, like, unfriends you. And then to kind of be refriended again, you actually had to go and, 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 and confess that sin, right? And so maybe it's where that idea came from because, I mean, suicide is unique in the sense that that's the one act that does not give you the opportunity after you do it to, to confess. Like, that's the final act. And so, if that's the final act, does it leave you in that place where you are cut off from the grace of God forever? Is it the forg- unforgivable sin? And the Bible does say there's an unforgivable sin. We're not going to talk about what it is. might be a great question in the question box. Is that an unforgivable sin? Maybe you heard so or taught so at some point. But you know, I just have to say, I think that's really at odds with the gospel. The gospel that we believe in, the gospel of Jesus. You know, what is the gospel? The gospel says that sin separates us from God, right? We are all sinners. And in our sin, we are separated from God who is holy, right? And we are under judgment for our sin. But God, because He loves us, He sent His Son Jesus into the world the perfectly righteous one to bear our sin on that cross, to pay our debt to God and to make a way for us through his death and resurrection to be reconciled to God and have life eternal, the life we were created to have, to dwell with God forever. Jesus made a way through his death and his resurrection on the cross so that by God's grace we are saved through faith in what Jesus has done for us. Not through what we do or any of our good works, but by putting our faith in what Jesus has done on our behalf, repenting of our sin putting, and trusting Him as our Lord and Savior, the promise of God is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, believe upon Him, you are saved. You are forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. And, and if that's happened to you, you, you maybe realize at some point you didn't become perfect right away. Maybe life changed. Maybe you've been growing in godliness and holiness. But you maybe haven't reached perfection yet. I'm not quite there. 
My wife says I'm close. I mean, she didn't say it, but I see it in her eyes. I'm down to twice a month now, so it's... You know, we're not perfect, but, but, but maybe you've wondered, as I have, like, what, ha- what happens if, like, that really big sin that I'm, like, really embarrassed about, maybe no one else knows about that? What happens if I do it, and then, like, all of a sudden, I slip in the bathtub, and I die, and that was the last thing that happened, and I have to stand for God, and that was the very last thing I did? You ever, you ever thought like that? Like, like what, what if it ends that way? Does the way we end that final act, does it undo does it overwhelm the grace of God that is secured for us in Jesus Christ? Is that how, how it works? You know, we, we kind of, we're saved, and then we sin, and then we lose our salvation, and then we confess, and then we're back in, and then we sin, and then we're back out, you know, kind of being unfriended, and then friended, and then God unfriends us, and then we're friended again, and you just don't want to die when you're in that unfriended period? And the gospel says, no. When we are forgiven, we are forgiven of all of our sin. Past, present, future, and of course, it would be right for those who love God to confess their sin and to grieve over their sin, but we are forgiven. And so Jesus will say in John chapter 10, He will say, I give them eternal life, talking about those who believe in Him, His disciples, I give them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. I love that. You know, it's not you holding Jesus' hand, holding really hard, don't let go, getting weak. No, it's God holding your hand. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, Become children of God. It's God holding you, and God will not let go to those who belong to Him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither the present nor the future, neither height nor depth, neither life nor death can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that good news? And a tragic decision made in a desperate situation cannot underdo or overwhelm God's grace that belongs to us through Jesus, that's kept safe, held in His hand. So no, a Christian who commits suicide isn't kept from heaven. The only people that are kept from heaven are the people that choose not to be there because they do not accept the free gift of God, eternal life through faith in Jesus. He did all the work. The question is just, well, will you receive it or not? Will you trust in yourself or will you trust in in? in what Christ has done for you. We all have a choice to make. That's the decisive question. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or are you trusting in yourself to be right before God? The only people that are kept out of heaven are those that do not accept the gift of heaven through faith in Jesus. But for those who belong to Him through faith in Jesus, nothing can separate us from that inheritance. So what does that mean, the last couple of minutes here? Given all of that, how does that impact the way we live? And, and it probably does it in all sorts of ways that are worth pondering. But just a few things I want to mention. Coming back to these couple of principles we've interacted with, the principle of autonomy. We are not owners, but we are stewards of ourselves, church. You're a steward of yourself. God made you, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, and you are a steward of your body, and you are a steward of your mind, and you are a steward of your spirit. You don't own yourself, right? But God has entrusted you with your body, 
and your mind and your spirit. And the question is, what are you doing with it? How are you treating it? In other words, are you eating enough vegetables? Like maybe, maybe that's what I'm like. Are you caring for yourself? I don't mean loving yourself. I don't mean idolizing yourself. I don't mean putting yourself above everything else. I mean, are you caring for yourself? Are you caring for the body that God has given to you, which he says is a temple of his spirit? Are you caring for the mind that he has given to you? Like maybe there's some of you that are kind of struggling in some way, like mentally, emotionally, and, and maybe some of you struggled with for a long time and maybe you've just tried to bury yourself and you've not let it show. Like maybe what it looks like for you to be a good steward of yourself is to like share the struggle. Share the struggle. Look for help. Share it with a trusted friend, a godly person. Maybe go seek counseling or therapy or something. What, is it, what would it look like for you? You had to take care of your body and to take care of your mind. It might mean like just to find the courage to like actually go and, and be honest and, and to receive help and to ask for help. Because there might be some people here this morning that are kind of battling suicidal thoughts or really struggling. In fact, I know there are. I don't know who you are, but I know there are because there's just enough of you here that you're in the room. Look for help. You are a steward of yourself. I think this impacts how we care for one another too. You know, if... um, if the quality of life, if the value of life is not found in comfort or health or wealth, but if it's found in hope and meaning and purpose, then our job is to help one another live in hope and meaning and purpose. Because one of the conditions for um, being, you know, qualifying for uh, medical assistance and dying is that you, uh, you have an, un- an unbearable experience of suffering. Well, who decides what's unbearable? Well, I guess only a a person can because it feels unbearable. There's no machine that says, oh, that's bearable or that's unbearable. It's something you feel. You feel it's unbearable. But I, I, I think it's not true that there's anything that we will experience that has to be completely unbearable. I don't think that's true that there is something that is unbearable. There are things that are hard to bear. There are things that are heavy to bear. There are things that are unbearable apart from the help of God and the help of others. So, so maybe a part of what we take away from this is we need to help bear one another's burdens. There are people around you that are suffering in different degrees and different ways, and maybe you know some of them, who they are. Right? There are people around you who are suffering. Could you be someone who could go help bear a burden? Come into a situation and help people, help, help them find hope in God, to renew their hope in God, remind them of their value, help them kind of find or discover or rediscover their meaning and their purpose in spite of the suffering that gives them the ability to keep going on? Is there someone around you that you can draw near to to help to bear their 
burden. Because that's the ministry of Jesus, right? That's the ministry of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 4, He has borne our sufferings and carried our sorrows. That's our Jesus. He bore our sufferings and He carries our sorrows. That's our Jesus. And for those who follow Him, we're called to that same sort of ministry. We're called to be those who bear other people's sufferings, who carry sorrows with others, to help people find hope and to find meaning and purpose to discover that they still have a reason, they still have something to give, they still have something to receive. Jesus had compassion for those who suffered, and not compassion that caused Him to put people out of their misery, but to bear their misery and bear their burdens. And we are called to do the same, to help people find hope, meaning and purpose, in the midst of suffering. It's that hope of Jesus in which we're to live each day and the hope in which we're called to point others to. And so I just want to invite you into a moment of kind of reflection and and prayer as we close here. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes and talk to God and listen for His voice. And, And let me give you a question. Is there any way that you are finding in your own life, you're finding your value in comfort or in health or wealth instead of finding your value and your quality of life in loving God and loving others? Where are you finding your value in life? Think on that. Are you finding your value in the hope and the meaning that God gives you through His Son, the one who has a plan for your life and whose plan is that you live for His glory and to know His glory? And the second question, is there someone around you who is struggling who is suffering that you can support better when you leave here today? Like, is it a family member? Uh, Is it a friend? Is it it a colleague? Is Is it someone in the neighborhood? Is it someone in the church? Is there someone that you know of who is in big ways or small ways struggling or suffering with something that you can leave here today to help better? Just ask God that. Maybe he's bringing a name, a situation, a face. What would it look like for you to leave here today and to go help someone bear a burden in the face of suffering, to help them find meaning and hope? God, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin hopeless in this world but you sent your son Jesus to make a way for us to have a life of undying hope and and a meaning in all things that that no situation in life can extinguish we thank you that that you, you do give our lives just deep meaning and deep purpose, even if we're at the end of life and we've got cancer and, and we maybe don't even have a, a lot of time left. Even in those days, you have a plan and a purpose 
There are things to receive from you, the things to give to you and to others. And I just thank you, God, that, that you give purpose to each and every day. And we want to live purposeful lives. So show us, God, how we can do that, how we can be good stewards of ourselves, our bodies and minds and spirits and everything you've given to us. And show us, God, how we can come alongside one another who are struggling and help carry a burden and point people towards the, the hope and the meaning that you provide. Lord, would you use us as followers of your son, Jesus, to do his work, to be his hands and feet in this world? Because there are so many people that need it. Use us, God, for your glory. We live for you. We are yours. In Jesus' name we pray.